my notes. Well, keep your notes or your Bibles open to this passage that Pastor Cruz read, and thank you, Pastor, for, for reading that. Um, it is my joy to be able to preach on a familiar passage to you tonight, but hopefully to look at it in a slightly different way than perhaps you are used to. And I will have slides uh, with this message tonight so you can follow along that way if you wish. We're going to be talking at a, about a parable that I'm sure is familiar to many of you. Um, in fact, I trust that many of you could give the name of this particular parable, even if I asked for it. So, my title here, my slide, says the parable of the, fill in the blank for me, of the what? Prodigal son. There you go. Well, tonight I'd like to propose a different title. For tonight, I'd like to suggest that this parable should actually be called the parable of the older brother. And I'll explain why in a moment. Parable of the older brother. Oh, it helps to turn that on. There we go. But before we get into that too deeply, I want to say this, that the main idea of this message actually came from a sermon I was listening to a few weeks ago. I was listening to a message by uh, Pastor Tim Keller from Gospel in Life. That's his podcast. And on that podcast, you can listen to various messages of his that are kind of scattered through different periods of time in his ministry. This particular sermon was recorded originally on January 25th, 1998, and it's entitled The Second Lost Son. So if you like listening to podcasts, I encourage you to, to uh, write this one down and listen to it at some point because it's excellent. It was released just a few weeks ago. And I say that as any responsible preacher should, if you get an idea from somewhere not to plagiarize that, the, the main idea of this message came from listening to that. But believe me, it, this is not the same message. So even if you go and listen to that sermon, it's not like a one-for-one -one copy of it. But I, I did just get so excited with the way he handled this text that I thought, man, I, it, like, a, like a kid who finds a treasure in the field and runs to tell his family about it, I wanted to tell you guys. You know, I, I read that, or I listened to that, um, that podcast and immediately knew this is what I have got to preach on because I'm so excited about the point that he makes. Um, so this is the parable that we're going to talk about today, the parable of the second brother or the older brother. And uh, this is the main idea I want to convey to you tonight. While we often take this parable to be primarily about the younger son, i.e. The, the prodigal son, we should consider that Jesus' intended audience was not primarily the prodigal sons of this world, but rather the Pharisees, who are the older brothers in this story. That was Keller's basic idea in his sermon, and it blew me away, because I had never read this parable before in that way, and when I started to and listened to what he was explaining, that really changed the way I looked at this parable as a whole. And so tonight, that's my main idea as well, although the study that I did is entirely different from the one that he did. So that's, that's the idea I want to go with tonight, and I want to convince you of this idea because I recognize that perhaps you have never read this parable in this way before. We're so used to it being the parable, the parable of the prodigal son, okay? So um, to read the parable in this way is going to take us a lot of effort, I think, tonight, because that is not the way we're used to reading it. And I imagine some of you might even still be looking at me a little bit skeptically right now, like, what are you talking about, okay? But let's start with how we are used to reading this story, okay? We're used to reading this story this way, 
We have this image in our mind. We read this parable and we see the story of a son who makes a really stupid mistake. He asks for all of his inheritance right away, and then he runs off and blows it all. And then he's brought to this absolute lowest point in his life, absolutely broke, forced to be a servant, and longing to eat food that is meant for pigs. It's then that he realizes what a terrible mistake he's made. And so he makes plans to come back home to his father. He falls down on his knees, he confesses his sins, and he pleads just to be one of his father's servants. But then as he arrives home, before he can get a single word out, the father sees his repentant spirit. He runs to meet him. He wraps his arms around him, and he forgives him completely. And even though the younger son has messed up his life, the father welcomes him back into his house and rejoices because his son, who was as good as dead before, is alive again. And as you imagine that story in your head, you can almost hear the Disney music playing, right? You know, the, this playing out in slow motion, you know, the father running to hug the son and everything. And it, it's a touching story, and we get teared up, you know, just thinking about it. It's an emotional reaction that we have to this story because we immediately identify with who? The younger brother, right? We think of all the ways that we have failed, and we realize that God has forgiven us of so much in our lives, and we're moved with gratitude when we see how loving the Father is in this story. And that's not necessarily a bad way to read it. Of course, all those things are true that I've just said. We are often the younger son, and in this parable, we are supposed to be reminded of all the ways that we mess up, and just how loving, how merciful, and how welcoming our Heavenly Father is. So hear me out. Those are all very valid ways to apply this passage. And I'm not here tonight to blow up your understanding of the prodigal son so you can breathe a sigh of relief. Okay, I'm not going to tear away something that's probably very precious to you. But just know that when we come to this passage, our default is to read it from the perspective of the younger brother. I would like to suggest to you another way to read it. And while there's nothing wrong with reading the parable in the way that we have, I would ask you to consider it this way, to read it from the perspective of the older brother pictured here. And that uh, is, is, is when Jesus told this parable, that's the primary group that he was talking to, the group of people that he was looking right in the eye. It wasn't a bunch of, par uh, of, of prodigals, rather. It was the Pharisees, the older brothers that correspond to this story. That's what I want you to see tonight, that this parable was told primarily for the older brothers of this world. That means that before we apply this passage from the perspective of a prodigal, we should first apply it from the perspective of the older brother. Did you get that? Before we go to apply this passage from the perspective of a younger son, we should first understand what does it mean if we are the older son in this parable. Okay? This guy right there. So before I go on, I want to address some objections because I don't know what, how you're receiving this. I don't know if you're like, okay, I want to hear more. If you're like, I don't really know. This is not the way I've read this story all of my life. So let's address, address some objections to this way of looking at it, perhaps. 
Okay, what about the section title in our Bibles, somebody might say? It says the prodigal son right there, you know? And to that I would say, just keep in mind that the titles and the subheadings that you have in your Bible are not inspired, right? And, and not even the verse numbers are necessarily inspired. Those actually were only added in 1551, in case you were curious, to help us kind of make sense of the different portions of the text. So imagine, if you will, the Bibles that you have in front of you having none of that all run together. In fact, in the original Greek manuscripts, there are no spaces between words. People who could read it that well just understood where the different words broke. And it's one continuous line of, of letters followed by another continuous line with no paragraph headings, no verses, nothing. So I want you to imagine your Bibles that way. Anything that we have written down like that is added by different translators. And if you have a different translation tonight, whether it's a King James or an NIV or an ESV, those titles might look a little bit differently. Okay, so that's how I would answer that particular objection. Uh, second question, what about the three back-to-back -back parables, uh, or it should say parables there, that focus on something that is lost? Okay, so this is going to help for you to have your Bible open right now, okay, because I'm going to be looking at a whole section of text. So if you're not there right now, I'd encourage you to do so or have it up on your phone because all of chapter 15 is going to relate at this point. And if you are somebody who has read the Bible in context for a long period of time, you'll catch this. You'll say, hold on now. You're saying this is not about the lost son, the prodigal son. This is about the older brother. Well, then how do you explain this? All right, and let me pull this up on the screen. There are three parables in succession. And if you were to look at them just very briefly scanning through your Bibles, you'd find that Luke 15, 3 through 7, is the parable of the lost sheep. Then Luke 15, 8 through 10, is the parable of the lost coin. Following this pattern, I want to ask you this. Luke 15, the passage for tonight, 11 through 32. If it's the lost sheep, lost coin, what is this? The parable of the lost son. Lost son. So you might say to me, Pastor Dave, there it is. There's the pattern. Something lost, something lost, something lost. Shouldn't this be entitled the parable of the lost son? Because it fits with those three. And I would say, okay, yeah, that would, that would be one way to look at it. But while it's true that those three parables repeat that lost theme, the reason I would say that is not ultimately the focus of this parable is because there is something added to that very last parable that is not present in the other two. And that unlocks the meaning for all three together. So yes, I would say you are astute if you noticed that all three of those had something in common and that Jesus is telling them in succession. That's actually very important. But there's also something that's added to this third parable of the three that's going to help us unlock the meaning of all three as we read them together. And so, yes, I believe even with all that in mind, we should be focusing on the elder brother. So um, let me show you what, what I mean by this. Let's look at these three parables together, all right? The way each of them uh, end. So the first one, the parable of the lost sheep, Luke 15, 6 and 7. This is how it ends. It says, and when he comes home, he calls his friends together and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me. For I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. 
So you see at this first parable of the three, it ends with a man finding the sheep. He rejoices, I've highlighted that for you, and the friends rejoice. Next one, we go on to the, the second parable, the parable of the lost coin, ends the same way. It says, and when she had found it, this is the coin, she calls together her friends and her neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So the woman finds the coin, she rejoices, her friends rejoice with her, and we are told that this is the right thing to do. Now let's go on to the third parable, what we know normally as the prodigal son. It appears to end the same way. So if we go to what's close to the end of this parable, 22 through 24, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. Notice that correspondence there. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So you can see just like the lost sheep or the lost coin, the father finds the son and he rejoices. The friends rejoice. You saw that rejoice theme three different times. However, there's an interesting addition to this third parable that is not included in the previous two parables, and that is the resistance of the older son. And that's found specifically in verses 25 through 32. You don't see that kind of resistance in the first two, right? So when you look down on that, you say, okay, that's something a little bit different here. That part is unique to this parable. There is no resistance in the other two. So why is this section included when in other parables that, or that come before it, it's not there? Well, I'd like to make a case as to why we should make the older brother the focus of this particular parable. And the answer lies in what Jesus is doing with the entire section of this text as a whole. The first way we can know this is that Jesus' primary audience is the Pharisees, and I want to show this to you. Um, Jesus is primarily talking to the Pharisees in Luke 15, and not just to the ordinary people. The Pharisees aren't initially Jesus' primary audience, but they become his primary audience as we go on. So let's listen to what it says in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 26. This is just prior to chapter 15. It says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Okay, so again, he's starting out with the crowds. And that makes this all the more amazing because he's talking about some pretty powerful stuff. He's, he's not trying to do any kind of seeker-friendly stuff right here and make things easy for them to believe. He's hitting them with some hard truths. He's saying, if you want to be my disciple and doesn't hate his own father or mother or wife or children or brothers or sisters, he can't be my disciple. What does that mean? And that's some hard teaching. Then we look a little bit further in Luke 14, 26. Yeah, there it is. Anyone who does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, he moves on from there to this section about salt. 
And it ties in, it might seem like an unrelated subject, but it really relates to what we just said. He says, salt is good, and this is to the same audience now, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use, either for the soil or the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. So again, he's giving some very harsh words to the people that are listening to them, to him. And this is a general crowd that's hearing it. This is what uh, commentator Craig Keener says about this. He says, the point of this particular passage is that the disciples who do not live like disciples are worth as much as unsalty salt, which is nothing. Nothing. By the way, if you want a, a cool uh, commentary to give to somebody as a gift this Christmas, that one's a good one, okay? Uh, New Testament Bible background commentary, just phenomenal. Um, but I like the way he puts that because, again, when you think of these things together, he's saying exactly the kind of thing he was saying about father and mother and wife and brothers and all that. He's saying being a disciple is hard, and if you're not going to live all in, then you might as well not do it at all. He's saying this to the crowds, to a general audience. That's what makes this next part so amazing. Because now we come to Luke 15, verse 1, and it says the tax collectors and sinners were all what? Drawing near to him. You would not expect that at all, based on what he just said. Because he's not making it easy for them in any way. He's saying, unless you're all in and willing to deny everything, and unless you're completely salty salt, you know, uh, you can't be my disciple. You're worth nothing. It's not going to be worth it unless you are all in. And yet, these sinful individuals are the ones, the very ones, who are drawing near to him to listen even more. They pull closer. They're fascinated. They're listening intensely. They want to hear more. But notice this is where things shift. Because I said initially, his audience was the crowds. But now it's going to shift a bit to the Pharisees. And this is what it says in Luke 15 too. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So we see the Pharisees are also listening in the crowd as well. And they begin to resent the fact that these sinners and tax collectors are drawing close to Jesus. They're basically saying, these people have no right to be listening to what this teacher has to say. They're not worthy of such things. And Jesus should know what kind of people they are. So notice what happens next in verse 3. And this is very important, so I hope you're paying attention to this. It says, this man receives sinners and eats with them, and then this. So he told them this parable. Who's the them? The Pharisees. Yes, yes, exactly. He shifts his attention he was talking to the whole crowd, and he, at this point, hears what the Pharisees are saying, and he focuses in on them. Okay? This is what I want you to picture in your mind. You see there's people, they're sitting on the ground, but Jesus shifts and looks these Pharisees directly in the eye at this particular point. He says, and then he launches into these parables. That's important because when we read these three parables that are following, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, we immediately read them from the perspective of the lost item. 
We put ourselves in place of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. But you need to know that we, the lost sons, were not the primary audience that Jesus was speaking to here, and that matters. How do we know this? Well, first, we've already said in Luke 15.3, it already told us who Jesus is directing his words toward. But the second reason we know this is that the ending of the last of these three parables tells us that Jesus is focusing on application for the Pharisees. Here's the big idea that he's going to tell throughout all of this. That once, uh, something that was once lost, but now is found, should be a cause for rejoicing. Let me say that again. The point that Jesus is now going to make to these Pharisees, these teachers, is that when something is lost, but now is found, especially the soul of a human being, that should be a cause for rejoicing. That's the point that Jesus is trying to to convey here. But as he's conveying that, he knows he's dealing with a hostile audience. Already before he starts to tell these parables, you can tell they're grumbling. They're not liking what's going on here. He knows that they're not going to be receiving what he has to say well. So what does Jesus do? Knowing that he has a hostile audience that isn't thinking the proper way about these individuals who are sitting at Jesus' feet, longing to hear more, wanting to hear his teaching, he needs to convince them of something else or give them a hard truth. How is he going to communicate that? I would propose to you that he uses what I'm going to call a Nathan the prophet method to make his point to the Pharisees. I don't know how many of you know that story. I've got pictures of both Nathan the prophet and David. We'll go over that in just a second. And then also Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. What do I mean by that, a Nathan the prophet method? Well, in the Old Testament, King David once committed a terrible sin by sleeping with a woman named Bathsheba, a woman who was not his wife, most likely taking her against her will, and then covering it up by having her husband Uriah killed in battle. That was a terrible sin on David's part. So God sent a prophet to him named Nathan, to confront David about this sin. But because we as human beings are usually so resistant to someone calling us out and confronting us on our sin, and you know that to be true, right? I mean, anytime somebody tries to confront us, that doesn't matter who you are, all of us tend to put up a wall, don't we? We don't like to hear it. We want to find ways to get excuses and and talk around it. And God knows this. And in this case of David, God knew it and cause Nathan to take this particular method. So let's go to that particular portion of Scripture. 2 Samuel 12. And it says this, And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich, one poor. And the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew with him and with his children. And it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. And there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And then David's anger was greatly kindled against that man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. 
and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then Nathan said to him, here's the key, you are the man. You are the man. And I trust many of you have heard that story before. So just to review, you see what David uh, has done to him here, what Nathan the prophet does, rather. He starts off with this rather innocent story of some person over there, this individual has a, a tiny lamb and this greedy man who has everything and takes that little lamb from that other individual, this poor man. And it would seem that the story has a very obvious conclusion, a very obvious call for justice. But then what Nathan does is he turns it around and says, David, you are that man. Why do I bring all this up? This is all very relevant, I think, to what Jesus is doing. It's because Jesus is taking this story, these parables, taking something that's very obvious, something that seems to have a very obvious answer, and then turning it around on the Pharisees to say, you are that man. You are the person who is not willing to receive the younger brother. So I have up on the screen, why is this part of the older brother's resistance to rejoicing found only in the third parable? And that's because Jesus is saving it to the end to make this very point. He's started off with two very easy parables, right? You think about a lost sheep. You lose a sheep, you find it. Who wouldn't rejoice over that? It seems very obvious. Nothing offensive about it. You lose a gold coin and you find it. If it's worth a few hundred dollars, that's cause for rejoicing. The Pharisees are listening to both of these things. And there's nothing that's going off in their minds because the answer's obvious. Nobody in the world would say that's an offensive story. Yeah, it's, it's, of course that's what you do. You find a sheep, you rejoice. You find a coin, you rejoice. But that's why this third parable is different because now he comes to a lost son. And let's say it's an individual who is lost and now is found once again. What will be your response to that? And Jesus knows, just like Nathan knew when he was talking to David, that while they would be nodding their heads yes to the first parts of this, that when it comes to the end, he would have them trapped, or at least being able to make a point out of all of this. That's the connection I see between these. So we see that Jesus told these parables first and foremost for the older brother of the world. When we consider that these three parables aren't three individual stories on their own, but they all occur together as a unit, and that the third one is meant to hit you at the end with the end point, the strongest point of all that ties all three together, then you realize that the subjects that he's dealing with at the very end of the third one is who he is saying these things for. That's the Pharisees, the older brothers. <clears throat> I have a question to ponder, for us to ponder. When you read this passage, or when you've read it in the past, how often have you read it from the perspective of the younger brother? We read it from the perspective of this younger son, yes, and we read about the failings, we think about our own failings, we see the forgiveness of the Father and we rejoice at how our Heavenly Father has welcomed us. 
And again, don't get me wrong, these are all very valid applications of this passage. But what if Jesus intended us to first apply this passage as if we were the older brother, before we even get into the younger brother stuff? You see, what Tim Keller argues in his sermon on this passage is that an ancient Near East audience wouldn't have read the story about the welcoming father in the same way that we do today. And this is what he says. He says, the younger brother essentially comes to the father and says, liquidate part of your estate that would have gone to me. Even though you're not dead, I want your things, but I don't want you. Give them to me. I'm leaving. And you have to understand in that culture, he would have brought tremendous humiliation and shame on his father. He would have destroyed the family estate by insisting that it be liquidated. This is immense. And those who know about ancient Eastern culture knows what it means to be shamed. This would have been the only father in that society to have a son do something like this. And there is no scholar or commentator who would say that those who are listening to this parable about the father's forgiveness are getting sentimental or weepy-eyed. The people who heard Jesus' story were absolutely outraged. So the story of the Father's forgiveness wasn't originally received as heartwarming. That's what I'm telling you tonight. It would have been received as shocking and offensive. How dare he just allow this kind of injustice to happen? You know, and the Pharisees would have put themselves in the place of the Father, recognizing just what tremendous shame would have been done to this family by this younger son. It would have been outrageous to hear. So when we read it today, what I'm saying to you is that we shouldn't only look to the younger son and say, wow, I've been forgiven just like that. But Jesus is intending to challenge us here and essentially say, could you consider if you are also the older brother? What about you? What about you? What are we to do with this in application? What's the the so what about this passage? I'd like you to assume that you are the older brother of this story for a moment. Set the younger brother aside for tonight, and I'd I'd like to ask you these questions. Have there been times when you have thought like the older brother? Or is there a chance that you are thinking like the older brother now? Well, to answer those things, you might want to ask, well, how can I tell if I'm acting or thinking like an older brother? That sounds very conceptual. How, do, how would I know if I'm falling into this trap? Well, I'd give you a few questions to help you discern that. Number one, is there anyone who previously did not live for the Lord, but now is? But nevertheless, you might still refuse to acknowledge or give any credit to because of their past. Let me say that again. Is there anyone who previously did not live for the Lord that you know? but maybe now is. But nevertheless, you still refuse to acknowledge or give any credit to them or to God for what he has done in their life because of their past. You know, we're a close-knit church, and uh, we're a family church. There are many family clusters in this church, and I recognize I'm part of one. Um, And that can be a good thing, and it can be a bad thing. 
Many of us have known each other for a long time, and if you are older, you can probably remember when some adults were also younger people, uh, maybe when they were teenagers or younger. Uh, Many of us have known each other for a long, long time, and the negative of that might be that you know all about when somebody was younger and maybe didn't quite live for the Lord at that particular time. Uh, Maybe you know all about somebody who grew up in this church or in your family, and you can think back to those years where they were living in just outright rebellion to Christ. And even if they turn and repent from that, or even, let's say, if they've turned and repented long ago, we still resent them. I'm not talking about those who just say, oh, I'm sorry, but then don't change, okay? I get that there are people who just mouth the words or those who use words to suppose you know, repentance and, and use that like a weapon, like saying, I- I've already said I'm sorry, and then just try and dodge the consequences with their words or not live any differently, okay? I under- understand the complexity of, of trust. So I'm not talking about those, and I don't mean to complicate things with those kinds of situations. What I'm talking about and what this message is about is not about those cases. What this message is about is when a person truly repents, And their life is truly changed by Christ. And in those cases, when a person is clearly and genuinely repented and changed, I'd like to ask you, what is your response to that person? When God has clearly turned someone's heart and life, do you rejoice? Do you hold on to resentment? Are you, in that case, no better than the older brother? Second way that we can know if we're acting or thinking in this way. I'd ask you, is there a certain class of people that you cannot imagine coming to Christ or that you automatically doubt their conversion when you hear it? Let me read that again. Is there a certain class of people that you cannot imagine coming to Christ or that you automatically doubt their conversion if you hear of it? In Luke 15, 1 and 2, when the tax collectors and sinners came to Jesus, The Pharisees immediately doubted their sincerity because of who they were. So I would ask you, is there any people group that you know of in your life, any type of people, any class of person, that if you heard they came to Christ, your first reaction wouldn't be joy, it would be skepticism or maybe doubt. Might be a way that we're thinking like an older brother. Let me suggest one third way. How can we tell if we're acting or thinking like an older brother? Number three, when somebody expresses true repentance, or if you hear of somebody that is truly seeking forgiveness, have you been so burned and jaded from your past experiences that your first reaction is cynicism? Let me say that again. When someone expresses true repentance, or if you hear of somebody that is truly seeking forgiveness, have you been so burned or jaded from your past experiences that your first reaction is cynicism? You know, maybe you've forgiven people in your past and they've turned around and burned you. I fully admit that that can happen and probably has happened to some of you in this room tonight. Maybe somebody who you've forgiven and put your trust in has betrayed you. Or maybe after so many cases of that, you've come to doubt people in general. 
In that case, I really want to ask you, gently but firmly, have your experiences in life so affected you that you can no longer discern when people truly repent? Has your cynicism caused you even to doubt God's power and ability to change a life? Those are questions worth asking. And while maybe not everyone struggles with this in the same way, chances are that there are times when we might have been, or even now just might be, the older brother in this parable. So I've asked you some pretty hard questions, I know that. And I don't want to just leave you there. So I want to lead you to this. What should you do if you are the older brother? Well, there's hope, because God gives us things that we can do. First thing we can do is acknowledge those who have turned back to follow Christ. That's the first simple point. Look around and see if there are any individuals that you know who were formerly not following Christ, but are now doing so. And if you have not ever done so, or even if you haven't done so lately, I would say give them a word of appreciation. Tell them, I just want to let you know that I'm so thankful for how God is at work in your life. I am so glad, and yes, even proud of you, for the way in which you are serving the Lord. Second, repent of any past unwillingness to forgive and receive and correct those mistakes. Consider if there's any individuals that used to live contrary <clears throat> contrary to the laws of Christ, but have since turned from that life and are now following him. And examine yourself to see if you are still holding on to resentment against any individuals like that. And then I would say, repent of that attitude. And yes, I know that sounds very direct. After all, we're talking about the younger brother here. Isn't he the one who's supposed to repent? But we see in the end of this parable that Jesus is also calling this older brother to repent as well. And that's exactly what that older brother needs in Luke 15, to repent of his stubborn refusal to welcome his younger brother as the father had already done. And you know, we need to be careful that we don't put ourselves in a place where we think we're speaking for God. The older brother thought he was standing up for righteousness. Do you understand that? He was essentially arguing with his father in the end. He was saying things like, my younger brother slept with prostitutes. You shouldn't forgive him. And he's also essentially saying, you are throwing this big celebration for my younger brother, and you never threw one for me. In other words, you are unfair. You are unfair. He's accusing his father. And on the surface, it would seem that the older son is arguing virtuously, that he cares about righteousness and fairness. But here's what's actually happening. The older brother is basically saying, Father, you don't know anything about justice or fairness. You don't care about holiness either, or else you wouldn't welcome back your son. We need to be careful that we don't presume to speak for God when God, in fact, thinks an entirely different way. And if you've ever held on to bitterness or resentment, there is something you can do. You can ask God tonight to forgive you of an unforgiving spirit. And then, at your next opportunity, acknowledge that person. Acknowledge to them the work that God has done in their life. Tell them that you praise God for them and for what God has done in their life. And then thirdly, prepare yourself to respond like the Father 
when the next opportunity comes. So we've already addressed things that you can do that were from the past, right? If there's any ways that you're sitting here tonight and you're realizing, I have not responded the way I should, I can think of times where I have been like this older brother. We've talked about ways that we can correct that, ways that we can repent of that, but I would say let's take it a step further and look to the future and say, you know what, God, I don't want to have that attitude of this older brother. I want to think as you think, as, as the heavenly father, the father in this story. And so I would say for us to do that, it takes not just repenting of the past, but also for us to prepare our hearts to have a different response when the next opportunity comes. Imagine you were the father in this parable. And let's say that on one rather ordinary day, you see this younger son appearing in the distance, worn out, humbled, ashamed. My question to you is, what will your reaction be when that moment comes? Will it be one of skepticism? Will it be one of twisted satisfaction? As if we're saying in our hearts, see, I told him that this would happen. He's getting what he deserves. Or will it be one of shunning? Where we say in our hearts, nope, he's coming back, but it's too late. He's just going to have to sit with this guilt that he's created for himself. I'm telling you, if you want to have a different reaction, a reaction that is more like the father in this story, welcoming, forgiving, and rejoicing, then you're going to have to do some work on your soul now. I would say, isn't it much better to let go of all of your bitterness, all of your resentment, all of your pride, wouldn't it be much better to react as the father in the parable reacts? Listen to these words just one more time. It says, I will arise and go to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found and they began to celebrate. We saw from the previous two parables that that is how heaven reacts when someone turns from their previous life, repents, and begins to follow Christ again. There is joy. There is celebration. Think of all the things that we celebrate in life. When a birthday happens, when we find a good deal, when we receive a piece of good news, we celebrate even when a football team wins. And I tell you, we should celebrate repentance even more. When someone turns from death to life, from self-destruction to exalting Jesus, that's just about the best possible news you could ever receive. And I tell you, it's not too late. God is still bringing opportunities and will bring opportunities in your life to celebrate this very thing. May we look for such opportunities. And here's the conclusion. Put up on the screen so you don't miss it. May we forgive as our Heavenly Father has forgiven us. 
And may we rejoice when others repent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we read this parable in a new way tonight, we recognize not only times where we have been the lost son, but also, God, times where we have been the older brother in this story. And God, it may just be that we need to repent of this sin as well. God, we desire to have the same mindset that you have on earth as you have in heaven, to celebrate repentance, to welcome those back who truly want to follow Christ and have found a change of life through your power. God, we don't want to hold on to any bitterness or resentment that you do not have yourself. God, we don't want to run contrary to your will. We don't want to be like this older brother. And so, God, I pray that you would just help us to correct any ways we've been wrong in the past. And, God, I pray that you would help prepare us to have right attitudes so that when the next opportunity comes, even if it's a difficult situation, even if it's a time where we've been hurt by somebody, and yet we see them truly turn to Christ and begin to live for him, God, may nothing hinder our ability from celebrating and rejoicing the way you yourself rejoice. God, help us to do what is impossible on our own. Give us that strength, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.